Welcome to the Andrew Michael Metter podcast. I'm Andrew Michael Metter. And I'm here with a legendary scientist, George Kramer. George, why don't you introduce yourself? Hi, um, Andrew. Thanks for inviting me on this show. Um, I'm Georgiana Kramer, but um, everybody calls me George. I work at the Planetary Science Institute, um, and I am pretty much um, a, I am a professional lunatic. It's actually the uh, job title that I prefer. Um, I study the moon almost exclusively, um, and um, and it's it's a great place, and it's a lot more interesting than you might think. Um, I would like to say. Um, very briefly, that today is June 10th, 2020, and today is um, Scientists Strike for Black Lives. Um, and so a lot of scientists are observing this um, this day in solidarity with our um, Black, Brown, and whatever else um, brothers and sisters um, who we support and um, love. So um, so this is my form of, of participating while striking at the same time. <laughs> Great, thanks for bringing that up. Uh, so the first question that I, I want us to think about to get our conversation rolling is, I wanna talk about the Outer Space Treaty of 1967. And it basically says that it, it was created by the UN and they said that space and celestial bodies are the province of all mankind, meaning that there's no way for a government or a national entity to claim sovereignty. So even though we have a flag on the moon, that doesn't mean the land is US soil. Right. Right. And so that means if we go to Mars, it's not just first come first serve. Right, absolutely. But when it comes to mining the moon, which there is increasing news and publicity about, is that first come first serve for industries? How is that going to work if the U.S. is there first and China's there as well and we're competing for the mining? Do you have any thoughts on that? Um, you know, I guess this is like the difference between corporations and government, right? Um, and um, I honestly don't really follow space policy very much, but um, my understanding is that um, we are still meant to treat the, the outer space like Antarctica effectively um, in that you know it's it's for everyone um, and fortunately although I would say fortunately Antarctica has actually been protected in this sense where um, corporate institutions don't get to go there and start mining it or doing whatever they want but um, the moon and the rest of the solar system doesn't have that protection um, and it's probably you know, that might be the right thing to do, actually. Um, you know, we'd like to we like to believe that capitalism or whatever form of uh, uh, corporate entity wants to take um, is going to go and, and do the right thing and, you know, um, um, go out and they're going to use the resources that are available, mine the resources, use them to further explore and to further, um, um, you know, conquer the galaxy. <laughs> but, um, um, and hopefully they won't be um, leaving just destruction and detritus in their in their wake. But um, um, who, who knows what's going to happen? I, I think that um, addressing your question directly, though, I think um, what's going to wind up happening is corporations are going to stake holds in certain places. Um, and you can't really say that they're um, American corporations or um, Chinese corporations um, or what have you. Because while they might, they might be from America, they're not representing America. They're representing their corporation and their own corporate interests. Um, so, um, 
you know, just as a lot of corporations will have send uh, jobs to another country or start manufacturing um, something in another country or put their money into in another country where there's less taxes and such. Um, that's the same in the same way, you know, they might be an American company, but that doesn't really mean they're, they're not America. <laughs> so, um, yeah. yeah, that's fascinating. I've never thought of it like that. I guess I've always thought like, oh, that's an American company. So what do you like? Are you for mining on the moon? Are you pro mining? Yeah, I'm, I am pro mining because um, I mean, a lot of people say like, oh, you know, don't destroy our, don't destroy the moon. Don't ruin, you know, it's environment and such. But, you know, look, I mean, <laughs> you know, this is in a vacuum. There's no life forms on it. There's no way that there's going to be life forms on it unless we make it the kind of environment that there would be. The only way we can really ruin the moon is, um, in my opinion at least, is if we deface its front, its front side. Um, I've heard some people um, talk about, like, somewhat jokingly, and I've also heard people talk about it not jokingly, which kind of frightens me, um, is, for example, having Coca-Cola put their logo, you know, scrape their logo onto the front side of the moon. Um, so that then when it's a full moon, that's what we're seeing. That is horrifying to me. <laughs> um, so uh, that would be the, that would be how we deface it. But it wouldn't be like we're going to go there and start killing off species. It's not like we're going to go there and start making the environment um, inhospitable or, you know, for anything, because it's already the worst place you could possibly imagine in the solar system. Uh, so yeah, as far as mining on the moon goes, I think it's, um, it's if, if the goal is to um, go to Mars, if the goal is to go beyond and, you know, really start um, you know, going beyond our own planet and living out in, in the solar system, then the moon is the most logical place to go and get resources from because, um, there is a lot of evidence that there's at least some water or some, um, and there's certainly, there's certainly forms of high, of oxygen that we can easily get out of the soil, combine it with hydrogen, which the sun is throwing at the surface of the moon all the time, um, and we have water, and we can take this water, and this is the most um, critical resource that we need to go and explore the rest of the solar system as human beings. Mm -hmm. um, so we can get this from the moon, and we can do it without defacing the moon as well. <laughs> um, for the most part. <laughs> so the the hydrogen, you're talking about solar winds, correct? Yeah, yeah. Um, so I watched I watched one of your lectures on lunar swirls, and was fascinated by it. Thank uh, you. And so the the lunar dew or moon dew. Space dew, yeah. Space dew. So one question I had was, does that dew stay on the surface? How does it? evaporate and then come back and stay on the moon. Okay, yeah. So, I mean, first of all, I know some some scientists are upset at me for calling it space dew, and of course it hasn't really taken off because, you know, saying evaporate is really the wrong word because that that involves, you know, an atmosphere and such. So, um in 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 the case of space dew and it that's spelled D E W, space dew, um is that we have the solar wind is is coming in it's throwing its its protons, um which are charged hydrogen atoms. Um, at the lunar surface and um, the surface of the moon um, has some um, when, you, when you break some of the minerals um, especially on the moon there's a lot of silicates and these silicates have a lot of oxygen in them and when those mineral surfaces are broken um, there's these oxygen atoms that have what we call them they're unsatisfied um, bonds and oxygen would like to be negatively charged so basically you have this when it's uh, oxygen is um, when it's when it's bonded with something in a in a molecule, it has a negative um, um, charge to it. 
that is satisfied with other positive charges from other atoms. So if you break that and you have these oxygens that are um, on the surface, they will have like a net negative charge. And so that would attract these hydrogen atoms. And so you could have these hydrogen um, protons, excuse me, these, these charged hydrogen um, atoms that are that come in like kind of stick to the oxygen, the negatively charged oxygen. It's a it's a really, really weak bond. It's um, sometimes it's called adsorption or um, or hydrogen bonding, but it's it's not a completely understood um, phenomenon, but there's a lot of evidence that this happens. Um, and so this is so the, the, again, these these protons from the sun come and they kind of stick to these surfaces. Um, and um, but if the thermal energy is too high, like at lunar noon or like during the middle of the day on the moon, um, the thermal energy is too high and they don't stay stuck together. But as you get closer to sunset, these protons will start thermal energy goes down and these protons start sticking. And then um, then lunar night comes and they're stuck together because they don't really have any energy that's you know driving them apart. So they're hanging out together. Um, and then they go into the night and they probably stay together all night long. And when, when uh, lunar dawn begins, the thermal energy comes <clears throat> and starts driving them off again. Mm -hmm. And we see evidence for this in, um, from uh, a few different instruments now, from um, first from the moon mineralogy mapper and the epoxy, which is the, um, the rebirth of uh, deep impact, and also um, Cassini, um, when, it, both of, when these last two instruments, or excuse me, satellites flew by the moon. And then again, with some of the instruments from Lunar Reconnaissance Orbiter, they're seeing this phenomenon is occurring. So that's why I call it space dew because it's kind of like, it's like the moisture <laughs> is sticking at night and stays throughout the night. And then in the morning it starts to um, disassociate, not really evaporate, but disassociate. Gotcha. Yeah. So, so what you're saying is that a hydrogen that's stuck at lunar dawn isn't the same hydrogen atom that's stuck at lunar dusk. Is that um, right. Yeah. Yeah, that would be right. And there's um, there's models that predict that you know these um, when when the um, hydrogen atoms like disassociate that they kind of wind up moving in a in a random direction, but it's like a kind of a hopping pattern. They'll you know they'll take off and then they'll land again somewhere else and take off again. And um, if you think about this all happening randomly, as they go towards further towards the poles, though. Um, even in a random motion, as they go further towards the poles, it gets colder near there at about um, about plus and minus 60 degrees latitude, um, such that they stop moving so much. And so there's models that predict that this is one way that we might be trapping ice up at the polar regions. Wow. Yeah. And are the, are the solar winds constant? Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's always, it's not that it's always on the same side of the moon. It's always on one side of the moon, just like the sun shines on one side of the earth. As it rotates, though, it, it will go on all sides. All right. So let's, let's suppose that we're mining the moon and we mine it into oblivion. I know that the moon is not, it's not entirely titanium. It's not entirely precious metals. But let's just say the moon is gone. Okay. So one thought that I had was, taking into account the Pacific trash monster. I think that's what it's called. <laughs> yeah. Okay. The plastic. So what if we took all of our plastic hunk and replaced the moon with an equivalent mass so that it, it wouldn't uh, affect our tides. It wouldn't affect any of the benefits of having the moon, but we got all the resources from the moon and we just replaced it with plastic junk. What do you see or what are your thoughts on that? Well, I guess 
I think the good news here is that I don't think we have enough plastic junk to do that. I think that, so that's, I, I, I can't say for sure. I think we have enough plastic junk to reach the moon and come back and, and go back and forth a few times, but we'd have to make the equivalent mass, right? That's the most important thing is that we'd have to make the equivalent mass. And um, I think that plastic is pretty close, maybe a little less denser than water. <laughs> Um, I'm not sure, but you know, it's roughly about um, one cc, one gram per cubic centimeter, while the moon is um, closer to three and a half. Um, so we'd have to have something that would be, you know, like three and a half times the volume. So it would be a much, much larger moon, just so that we could still have that same mass, so that we could still have the same kind of tides and such. Right. And so then it would have to be further away, correct? To have the uh, no, because if it was, if it was further, well, so I think. If I understand correctly, really, it's it's a, it's about where the center of mass is. So um, the uh, center, it would still have to be in the same location. Um, it might actually start getting weird if it gets that. If it get, I, I don't think it would have to be that. Um, I don't think it would get large enough, however, for it to such that the surface would be so close to the surface. The surface of the moon would be so close to the surface of the Earth that it would be weird like that. But um, so yes, it would have to be in the same location. Or if it was to be further away, then it would have to start becoming a more um, massive moon. Even, even more massive. So if we've got this artificial moon, are you okay with defacing it? Can corporations put billboards? On I'm not that? okay with that, no. I, I'm, not, I'm not okay with that because I don't, I don't wanna be forced to, to look up and, at, I mean, it's the moon for Pete's sake, right? I mean, you know, I, I, wouldn't, I wouldn't wanna have to look up um, at any, in any portion of the sky at any time and be forced to see a giant banner that's like, you know, taken up most of my view but um but the moon is a really is a really special you know piece of of, of i was gonna say real estate but that's really the wrong word to use um, um it's it's a um it's a special thing for all of us and i think that anybody who has seriously has the idea um of defacing the moon's surface such that especially at full moon it is advertising a, a something is it's it's deplorable it's the <laughs> I mean, go, go do whatever you want to the far side because, you know, we don't know what it looks like anyway. No, I'm just kidding. We know what it looks like. <laughs> don't do that. <laughs> so then with, so with that artificial moon idea, it's been in the news that China wants to put as many as up to three artificial moons, moon-like satellites. And the figure is that they can save $173 million in electrical costs if they use that as an artificial nightlight. So instead of using electricity to light street poles, they're gonna put these moons into orbit. So what are your for, thoughts on that? So, for, so I mean, is it just gonna be China that's gonna be illuminated at night? Is it gonna be geostationary? Right, so that's, it said they were going to orbit the earth, so not geostationary. Ah, okay. Which my my big idea with that was that it's obviously going to have an impact on other countries. Yeah. So how? I don't know. I think this is where Star Wars comes into play. And I mean, like Reagan's Star Wars, you know, <laughs> shoot them out of the sky. <laughs> no, I mean, that would be horrible. We wouldn't have night or we wouldn't have. I mean, it's already bad enough that um, that there's that the, the um, cities illuminate the the Earth so much that we can't have a proper dark sky to make um, astronomical observations. But now if we had night lights in the sky constantly, that would be that much. I can't believe that they're serious about that. That's, that's, 
Wow. I don't know. <laughs> yeah. <it's, laughs> that idea. <laughs> easier solutions that weren't so, like, that wouldn't affect the entirety. Like, of like having, like, huge solar farms that could then just produce that at nighttime, then, you know, store, stores the energy, and then at nighttime it can produce all the lights they want, and they can keep it in China, or whoever in China wants to have those lights near them. But, Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, so they did say that it would be one-fifth the brightness or the luminosity of normal streetlights. And I didn't really understand how that would be better. Yeah, I don't, unless it's more streetlights. <laughs> I mean, I think the moon, when it's a full moon and the sky is not cloudy, it's that's already rivaling a streetlight, or, or not, if not brighter, right? <laughs> mm. uh, but that's just one. I don't know. <laughs> Yeah, I don't know. That's very strange. I haven't yeah. seen that. <laughs> I would I would say I am also I'm also against that. Like the defacing or putting billboards up in space, putting it on the moon. I was uh, gonna ask you, yeah, how you felt about that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, I mean I'm someone that I am a huge advocate of biodiversity conservation, of natural park preservation. I think we need to keep things the way they are um i think of it like if you were getting an an organ transplant all of the metal structures and all of the buildings that we're putting on the earth all of our infrastructure it kind of seems like a foreign body and i i just feel like at some point the earth is going to reject it and i want to live a natural sustainable infrastructure I want, I want to work with the earth. I don't want to just do our thing. Yeah. Um, because I think part of it is like, even though I'm so grateful for my house and shelter, it causes us to feel really separated from the earth. Mm -hmm. We can feel like it, it, there's this mass idea that the earth is just there to be subjected, not to be valued, not to be cared for. Um, and I guess if we had that attitude, I guess I feel like we would be in a much better place pollution-wise, conservation-wise? So this is what gives me solid. So I, you know, believe me, I am no advocate for, for destroying the earth, using all of its resources, and because, because ultimately what's going to happen, we're not going to destroy the earth, okay? I'm sorry. But I mean, you know, right. unless we redirect a large enough asteroid to come at our, we're not going to destroy the earth. What we are going to do is make it inhospitable for human beings. And we are well on our way to that. I actually um, can't remember where I had read or seen this, but um, we've actually been living for the last about 10,000 years in a, um, up until very recently, <laughs> um, in this period of um, incredibly calm climate. Like if like looking throughout the geologic record, um, our climate has, has actually done a lot of fluctuation with temperatures, with ice ages and stuff. There's been a lot, a lot of varying fluctuation. And over the last 10,000 years, it's been actually unusually calm, maybe even, maybe even longer, maybe 20,000 or something years. Mm -hmm. And I think that personally, I think that's why civilization was able to start is because we didn't have things that just kept destroying our attempts at civilization. Um, and we're now putting the, putting the planet into a swing, you know, that's going to wind up destroying it. And so we're in my, in, is the way I see it, we're like kind of 
at this crossroads, regardless of whether we're causing it or if it's going to happen naturally, where we are intelligent enough that we could do something to make our civilization continue by stabilizing maybe this place, maybe uh, better yet, going to other uh, planets and stabilizing those so that they're um, hospitable for human beings. But this planet is, we are, we are not, I don't think we're actually going to be able to stabilize it. This is a very strong planet and it will do what it wants to do. And we might make it really, really awful for a lot of species and kill them off. It's true. But we are going to kill ourselves off too long before we destroy all the other species or, or the earth. And um, so I think that's the, uh, that's the thing that kind of gives me solace, sort of, that no matter what we do to it, we're, we're going to just be killed off and the earth will go on. Mm-hmm. But um, hopefully I, I care about the human race and I'd like us to go on. So we need to be smart about this. Yeah. One <laughs> of the courses that I teach is earth science. And so we explore, you know, what is the Martian environment like? What is the lunar environment like? And we, we talk about going to other planets. I would really love for that to be a last ditch effort because... I love going outside on earth and barring some wild progression and terraforming technology and capability going outside on Mars is not going to be a pleasant experience. Mm-mm. Yeah, you're no, you're going to be, <laughs> it's just not the same. And I just want, I want people to understand that it's like, Oh yeah, we don't just, it's not like we upgrade to Mars. Yeah, no, no, we just kind of, it's just, it's very different. (laughs) Another place that we could actually go to is, is Venus. Um, If we went to, I think it's at about 100 kilometers altitude, I think. I might have it. I think it's 100 kilometers altitude and above the surface um, is um, the temperature and pressure is ambient earth surface. Now, Granted, the atmospheric composition is not correct for us, so we would have to be still protected from that. Um, but we could, you know, be like outside, sort of in in the Venus atmosphere at one atmospheric pressure, and um, it might feel kind of comfortable temperature-wise. So we could live there somehow. So we would build a scaffolded civilization, or maybe a blimp based or something, you know. <laughs> city in star wars where like, i'm sorry what, oh yeah 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 yeah. <laughs> i think it's called cloud city i don't know yeah i'm not the biggest star wars aficionado so but are yeah. you a trekkie um I, not enough of either actually you know to really i guess i'm a little bit a little bit more tre- but still not not <laughs> <laughs> no, i mean i'm a big sci-fi fan don't get me wrong <laughs> yeah so let's go back to to the mining specifically, I was I was running some numbers and based off of the information off of SpaceX's website and what I could find about the market value for titanium. So a, a SpaceX launch at this time costs about two hundred and fifty million dollars. Like ninety million of that is reusable, and one hundred and fifty is just expended. It's consumable every time based on the volumetric cavity and the capacity to bring titanium back 
So based on the molar volume and the molar mass at the highest market value for titanium, which is $300 per kilogram, and that's for medical use, we could only make $8 million. Huh. So, so we spend $250 million to launch and we get $8 million from the titanium. But that doesn't include like the, the uh, resources that you need on the lunar surface to do the mining and such, does it? Correct. No, it doesn't include the wage and labor fees for the miners or if it's robots, the R&D to develop those robots, um, the, the cost of, you know, the electrolysis to keep the humans alive, the resources for the base, everything that's going into it for $8 million per payload. Yeah, I guess um, in my mind, I don't see the value of, um, of mining the moon or, and certainly, especially asteroids, um, um, for anything other than just using them to build spacecraft or to, um, to um, supply spacecraft for further exploration of the solar system. I don't, I, and let me, let me just put something to rest for any of your viewers out there who might be thinking, oh, well, look at, you know, there's all those like precious metals and such that are inside of asteroids. You would, you would have to literally pulverize and destroy that asteroid and, and sift, sieve it for all of its particles to get the um, resources, these precious metal resources out of it. There's no, uh, it takes, it takes a planet like earth that recycles its crust and starts, um, um, what's the word, um, um, segregating, I guess, like the, the metals, the, the um, not just the metals, but the elements in general that it doesn't want to put into normal minerals like our, our like quartz and whatever else you know it's after the these minerals are being created over and over and over again and you, it keeps putting the minerals it doesn't want like being left over and left over stuff like gold and platinum and such like that don't want to really go into any normal minerals so um once those mineral once those elements are just put into like left behind that's when you finally start getting veins and um and mineable ore that has that that doesn't happen on asteroids it doesn't happen on the moon it doesn't happen on mars might happen on venus but we have really no idea what's going on there um so yeah we mining asteroids for precious metals isn't really a thing now mining iron asteroids like um um psyche for instance which is like the core of a a, a disrupted planet planetismal that's yes okay there's a bunch of iron for you but we're not going to be mining a bunch of platinum and such like that out of asteroids. Mm -hmm. So because we're in the, the clutches of COVID right now, one, one question that I had was, do you think it's possible that novel viruses or bacteria are living on asteroids and other celestial bodies? And if we brought them to earth and mined them, we could transmit those vectors to humanity? I am like the furthest thing away from a biologist, but um, I would I would say no that that's not that's not possible. I think that the most complex thing that we've been able to find on comets or asteroids um, or meteorite particles are um, just complex sugars. Um, so it's it it's it's just sort of like the beginning of life. And I also I mean the beginning the beginning particles that could start coming together to become life. Um, I, I also don't subscribe to the idea that asteroids were, you know, brought 
these things to the surface of the earth because if they could be created on asteroids they could be created here on earth too so we don't really need those things to be brought here i think the earth was fully capable of creating those things itself um, and already in an environment that would have been more suitable for them to keep doing what they were doing or continue to replicate or or bond or whatever um, whereas on an asteroid they kind of couldn't do much of anything since the environment was already thermally pretty low um, you, don't, you don't buy into the the idea that life was seeded onto earth not unless it was intelligent <laughs> all right uh so back to the moon base so let's say let's say we think eight million dollars is worth it per payload and we do the math and we find out that the volume of titanium on the moon would would net us a profit of money from mining. Okay. So now we're doing all this development and research into building a moon base. I, I learned from your lecture that I watched that the moon is predominantly basalt. Is that right? Yeah. Which is a volcanic rock. And I was curious do you think that we would be able to use the basalt to build bases or would we have to build our own materials or I'm sorry, bring our own materials to the moon? Um, so well, I should back up a little. So the moon is, is this, the, the moon's crest at least is predominantly, um, it's actually predominantly a single mineral that's called, it's plagioclase. Um, and so we call the, the rock that it's made of anorthite. Um, and um, I'm sorry, anorthosite. Um, and, um, but that, but plagioclase is one of the minerals that's in basalt, so that's why it's kind of basalt. But all the dark areas that we see are, are definitely those are basalt. Stand, same stuff we have in the, the ocean floor, make up Hawaii, Galapagos, all that. Um, although a little tailored to being in a really dry environment like the moon. <laughs> um, yes, um, I, I have certainly seen um, um, presentations from companies and um, that are working on using the moon to to create our bases using the regolith, the surface of the moon, the, the like the already ground up soil to, um, to make um, habitats for us. I mean, I think that of course, some of the initial ones at least would have to be brought over, like maybe inflatable habitats um, to, for us to stay in because it would take some time to, to form other ones. And also living in lava caves would be an excellent, probably the best way for us to protect um, at least life forms humans so i think i think of the expenditure required like we're literally building from scratch building an environment that that we could live in and work in would we send would we train astronauts to mine or would we train miners to be astronauts that's a good question um I guess, hmm, I mean, if I had to guess the best way to do it, it would probably be to um, train astronauts to manipulate, repair, and work with um, robots that would do the actual, you know, manual labor. Um, yeah, I think it would be, especially like in, if they had to work, you know, out in the lack of atmosphere in a spacesuit, I think that that's just prohibitive to actually doing any sort of um, mining work that would be labor and like physically intensive. 
Um, I think just moving around is already physically intensive enough. <laughs> um, but um, but I know that they're, they're working now on um, uh, robotic and human interactions um, for going to the lunar surface um, using um, like robot automation um, and with some with human guidance and human interaction. So I think it would probably be best to have um, the astronauts be trained to to do those things. But I, I certainly wouldn't um, rule out the idea that some more highly trained um, miners, especially that are familiar with working with uh, mining equipment like that, would also be trained to go initially, in, at least, since they would already have those that expertise. Mm -hmm. So when you're talking, you're talking about the exhaustion, like that makes me think of if you're doing physical work or labor, your need for oxygen increases and <laughs> oxygen doesn't exist on the moon in the form of breathable oxygen in the atmosphere because there is no atmosphere. So that would greatly reduce the duration of time that you could be there and it would inc increase the cost because of the, the increase in the number of flights to send materials there. Well, the good news is um, as if they're, if they're mining materials, like if say they're mining the regolith, the, the surface um, fragments and material, and um, they are actually melting it to make um, pavement, to make um, habitats, to make um, whatever things they're intending to do. When they melt it, they're gonna drive off oxygen. So they just need to capture that oxygen and they got their oxygen. There's gobs and gobs of oxygen on the lunar surface actually, it's just tied up as rock. But you start melting that stuff and there's your oxygen. Hmm. Do we currently have scientific processes to be able to harvest that oxygen? I think so. Yeah. Um, but that is outside of my pay grade. <laughs> and that's the, um, like that oxygen, is that the hydroxyl, the OH? No, it'd be O2. I mean, it would, it would be coming off as just normal oxygen. So the oxygens are, are bonded to mostly silica um, and also, um, or silicon, excuse me, and also um, um, like iron, magnesium, calcium, and such like that. Um, it's, but it is, oxygen is the most abundant element that's in the crust. Are the silicas present in plagioclase? Mm -hmm. Yeah, they're in, so and and proxene and also olivine. Those are those are like the three most abundant minerals on the, and those are also the minerals that make up basalt, which is, which is why I say the moon is made of basalt. Yeah, yeah. So in in terms of gathering it, and bringing it back. I was was thinking through a lot of different scenarios, like, okay, so we have this little rover or space capsule and we just load it in and then when it gets full it takes off goes back to earth lands in the ocean there it is do we need to like bring it back would we cycle through the astronauts that are there i guess how long do you think an astronaut could stay on the moon for a mining operation before they would have to come back i i really don't know i don't I don't know about that exactly, but I do know that we're we're you know working on and talking about um, like um, it, uh, I mean currently actually working towards um, keeping a human on the surface for a lunar day, which is going to like an entire lunar day and night cycle, which would be a month effectively, a month a month on Earth. 
Mm -hmm. So those are the kind of um, initial, at least sustained presence. But I think that um, um, it would, the intention is for it to be longer. Do you think that we need to establish a lunar base before we establish a Martian base? Oh yeah, yeah. There's so much that we that we need to practice on the moon first. Um, you know, the moon is. There, I have. There's so many reasons. I mean, first of all, it it takes you know about three days to get to the moon. Um, whereas getting to Mars, the closest or the the shortest amount of time would be six months, and that's provided the the Earth and the Mar and Mars are lined up right. Um, so if you're going to have any sort of mishaps that are going to occur, it's there's a way better chance that you can get your humans back to Earth um, in time where compared to the moon. I mean to Mars. Um, also, I think that um, psychologically there could be a toll, especially in the beginning, on human beings leaving their home planet. Um, and um, if the moon, with 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 Earth being at least in their view, or um, maybe with the you know. I mean, if I guess if astronauts are working on the far side, they may lose this. But at least in the beginning, um, I would think that our bases would be near side bases, and astronauts would still be able to at least see their home and recognize it as their home. Um, whereas you start working on the lunar far side, it's you're never going to see your home, and that's going to be kind of weird. And then going to Mars, the Earth is going to become completely unrecognizable. Um, all you can do is point at it, that some kind of bluish star, and say, "Hey, that's that's my that's my pl home planet." I think that that. I feel like that would have um, a psychological toll that might not really be appreciated yet. So it's something that I think is worth exploring um, and, and testing, if you will. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's such, it's such a multifaceted experience when you think of all that. Like we, it's not common for people to go to the moon. So we haven't necessarily dived into all the nuance that's present there. Yeah. And I mean, also in addition, you know, the the moon does ha does have a lot of resources for us to use, and it's much cheaper to get these um, things like oxygen and water off of the lunar surface than it is to get it off of the Earth's surface um, at only having only one sixth the gravity that the Earth does. So um, it would be easier for us to be getting these resources that are imperative for us to go to Mars with um, from the moon rather than trying to get them all off of the Earth. Hmm. So for so psychologically, do you think that we should invest in like space pups, space kittens? I think that's awesome. I like that idea. <laughs> be present on those missions? I don't know. That's a good question. Um, I, I'm, I'm sure NASA would not go for that. <laughs> too, too, much, too much of a risk in so many ways, you know. But, um, but that would probably be actually psychologically a great thing, yeah. <laughs> Yeah, I have, would... I have three dogs myself, so yeah, they are they are my sanity. <laughs> yeah, it would be a wild card. I would want to be present when the dogs experience zero G for the first time <laughs> and just see how they react to it. Well, I wonder actually if because uh, you know the Russians that was they they sent dogs into space. I wonder if they if any of the readings they got might have said anything about what the dog was. Um, I don't know. Their heart rate's going to be high. They're going to be panting yeah. a lot. There's what are you going to do? Tell if it's they're scared or if they're just having a hard time breathing. <laughs> yeah. Like, do you think it would take generations of dogs to, to get used to that? Or do you think a single generation? Oh, I think a dog could get used to zero G pretty quick, actually. 
I mean, their dogs are incredibly adaptable, you know, and look at, and I mean, cats too, I'm sure actually cats would probably, I, yeah, cats would be fine. I think they would be fine. Um, it's, um, they're, I mean, they're like, you know, you can see how easily they get used to having three legs, for instance, or I've seen dogs that have to be in wheelchairs and they pick it up pretty quick. Hmm. Um, I think they could figure that out. But it would be all the resources we would have to be giving to dogs and not, that are not going to humans that I think would would become this big sticking issue. <laughs> so I just imagine you're on the surface of the moon, you're playing fetch with your dog, <laughs> and the dog bounds too greatly with too much force and just goes off into space. Not, not on the moon. No? Uh, no. On an asteroid, that would be, that's, that's a le legitimate concern, yeah. But on the moon, no, it would, dog wouldn't jump, jump off the moon. Mm. So, so I mean, it could go a pretty good distance, but, you know, it wouldn't, it wouldn't leave the moon. Mm -hmm. So even with the decreased gravity, a human couldn't just escape mm -mm. the moon's no. gravitational force? No. Not, not even Michael Jordan. That's comforting to <laughs> know. <laughs> okay, so you're saying even if you, like, threw a ball straight up into the air would it it would come back on the it, moon yeah it would come back i mean even um the um um the golf ball that i believe was certain and hit hit a golf ball um it that i'm sure that thing landed back on the moon surface somewhere <laughs> i wonder if wow. i ever tried to look for it <laughs> that'd be like a needle in a haystack i would feel like <laughs> indeed because <laughs> it's like it's already like pitted itself you know <laughs> Just look, look like every other lunar rock out there. <laughs> so have we sent humans to the dark side of the moon? No, we haven't. In fact, um, so China is the first to land something on the dark side of the moon. And no. not only did they land it, something they, they, they're roving around too. It's incredible. Yeah. And um, Beresheet was going to be the first um, to land on near a pole. Um, and they've came so close, so incredibly close as Israel's mission. Um, they came so close and then it was just sort of like at the last, at the last few seconds, they lost communication, unfortunately. That was, um, that would have been amazing. But I mean, it still is amazing because they got so close. Mm. Russia so, was the first to actually, like, Russia was the first to, to observe the far side and mapped and took images and mapped it. And so actually a lot of the far side um, features are named um, after Russian things, we have Mari Moskovyensi, which is the Sea of Moscow. Um, there's a really famous crater called Tsiolkovsky um, and a, a bunch of other places. Hmm. So bringing it back to the Outer Space Treaty, are, are those names nationally recognized? I know scientists collaborate across national and governmental borders, but is it, is it fair to be able to name those things? I think so. Yeah, at least that's the precedent anyway. So um, yes, those are internationally recognized. Those are official names. Mari Moscoviensi, all the um, all the far side names, and as well, China has named some features where um, where they landed um, on the near side and on the far side. Um, I I don't know if it, it has gone through the um, International Astronomical Union's you know approval thing. They have like a um, they actually decide you know what um, what things are named or, or prove what things are named, which is they are the ones responsible for Pluto becoming a dwarf planet. Um, um, and uh, 
So I don't know if that if they have actually done that yet, but I'm sure that they will approve what China names those those places. Hmm. There's so much. <laughs> There's so much there, like all of the I just keep I keep thinking about like how it, in recent history, I feel like there have been fewer and fewer invasive maneuvers by militaries. Like, I feel like from history, what I've learned is that people are constantly invading and taking territory. Mm. And I guess I feel like space is going to be like that. Like it's going to induce this new savagery in humankind where we're going to get to the moon and then someone else is going to like attack us on the moon and try and claim the moon and go against the UN and that treaty. Right. What, like you feel like that's going to happen or that's not even a thought in your mind. I mean, I guess I don't really think about it too much because it's the fact that the, 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 this has been like sort of a renewed interest in the moon lately. Um, and so that's that's already exciting enough that there's even an interest in it. Um, and I don't think any what I what I what I think are like credible leaders, but I'll get in trouble for saying this, <laughs> have um, have that you know that have made any sort of um, statements with respect to carving out our we own the moon or anything. I don't think any credible leaders have actually said that. Um, and uh, so again, I think what could be um what might be the biggest sort of land grab danger might actually come from corporations um but at least i guess from the american sense i don't really i don't have a good grasp on how um, corporations and government work in um, a lot of other countries in china for example i mean you know maybe it's maybe it really would be like china the the chinese government saying you know no this is we're interested in this because maybe they are they are closely networked enough with their their companies that it would be the Chinese government. I don't, I'm just not that kind of savvy. Um, but I think um, at least in the US, um, I mean, I do remember that um, during the, uh, I think it was the 2012 um, elections or ca can campaigns um, that um, Gingrich was claiming that he was gonna be president of the moon and. <laughs> what? How did yeah. I miss this? <laughs> I he I I remember he made some sort of a statement like you know he wants to be president of the moon, and um, yeah so but no that's just not good. <laughs> I need to look that up. That is hilarious. Oh man, <laughs> not even Elon Musk has said things like that about <laughs> or other. <laughs> wow. So what does your research currently involve? What are you currently studying? Um, yeah, so I'm, I, well, I still study space dew and lunar swirls. Mm -hmm. um, I've actually been um, working with a, a few companies, commercial companies, um, um, helping out with like proposals that they might be, um, or, that, or that rather that they're intending to submit to some of the um, NASA programs like um, the uh, PRISM, it's the acronym is PRISM and Sorry, I cannot, I cannot, I'm horrible like with, with telling you what it stands for, but it's about building instruments that would be, that would um, then be put on the uh, CLIPS programs. CLIPS, I know, that's the Commercial Lunar Payload Services Program. Um, and um, so it would be um, 
so instruments that we put on the clips uh, landers and rovers so and if you're not familiar with clips this is again it's commercial lunar payload services um, and there were about I think three different calls where they were asking commercial companies to um, to bid for um, um, providing the the landing service or the yeah the lander the platform lander and or rover um, that would bring these instruments to the lunar surface so instead of NASA building these things you know directly if you will even though NASA would actually be contracting like Lockheed or whatever instead now they're asking for the commercial companies to be to be the ones going ahead and they're coordinating the launch system and they're having to deal with all of the configuration and saying and proving that they will be able to handle configuration of all of these different instruments um, what kind of um, um, communication um, capabilities they're going to have and how they would actually be handling the communication so it, it's where NASA is kind of taking like a, a bit of a step of a removal um, in some sense. Um, and I think, I think sort of the intention here is to help these companies get up to speed. This is the way I sort of see it. Um, so that they would actually eventually be the ones who could just be doing it on their own without government support any longer. Um, and it would become a, a commercial based um, means of getting to the lunar surface um, and then going from the lunar surface to Mars and so on and so forth. Mm-hmm. When you say commercial companies, you're talking like Raytheon or Lockheed, not like Cadillac. Uh, right. Yeah. Although a lot of um, sort of new companies or um, or even existing companies that might uh, be smaller might not you might not have heard of much of like like Lockheed or, or um, 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 so yeah I don't think there's any Cadillac ones but it probably Honeybee might have been one Honeybee I know is, have made lunar habitats and um, and other components and such. Um, but there was a couple of new ones. There was a, one was called Moon Express. I think that I do not remember if they actually um, were funded, if they made, if they were selected. Um, one called um, Ast- uh, um, Astrobotic, they did get selected for one of the CLIPS missions. Mm-hmm. Um, and it, it's interesting because um, I believe that, so now there's three missions that are planned. Um, the first one being a lander, um, the second one, um, well, definitely the third one being a rover, and then I can't remember exactly the second one. They selected for the first um, for the first ones the lander three companies that would be basically competing against each other. Each each of them are getting funded, but they're competing against each other to be who would get there first. Um, and then um, then they get another like lump sum of money in the end if they are able to actually achieve that be the first one. Mm-hmm. So it's kind of like a like a Google. Um, X prize or something, except that it's from NASA and it's being a little pre-funded too. <laughs> yeah. So these things are being rapidly, rapidly developed and invested in. Yeah. Yeah. And actually, that's a good point. Rapid. Yes. This, they are. Um, they are. I believe that um, 2021. I think it might be the end of 2021, but um, is when the first lander is is has to go to the surface. And is that where they're trying to keep keep an astronaut there for the lunar cycle? Oh, these are just, um, this is just robotic um, uh, okay. stuff. There's, yeah, there's, there's not the, the first, I don't, they haven't, I don't think, um, I'm actually not sure how this is being done. I don't think that NASA is going to be reliant on the CLIPS program, at least to bring humans to the surface that might be considered too, too risky. I'm, I'm not sure, to be honest, because I'm not actually in at a NASA center or anything. Um, but um, they, um, we are we are nasa however is working on getting a human to specifically the south pole because that's what vice president pence said 
um, human, the first um, female and, um, and man to the south pole of the moon by 2024. But I think that would be NASA is, is the one that's actually coordinating and doing that. And of course, NASA doesn't make most of the it's stuff NASA doesn't make. It does contract out to other companies. It's just that NASA would still be the one putting everything together and doing the, the right. infrastructure and organization. Additional quality control. Mm -hmm. Whereas for the CLIPS programs, it's now it's like, okay, it's at the responsibility now of the, of the commercial companies to do all that, prove that they can do it. So the only other question that I have in my mind is going back to the psychological impact, like we talked about space pups and having animals there to help astronauts make it through. Um, I saw the new SpaceX uniforms and I, I want to preface this by saying that I'm asking you this because you're a, a lunar and a moon expert and I'm curious about your opinion, not the fact that you're a woman. Okay. <laughs> But I'm really curious, do you think it's important for fashion, like everything all considered should just be practical or do you think for the psychological aspect it's important to have that design aesthetic? Um, I think at least initially it's just for the practicality. I, I don't think the design, I, I think the design aesthetic is, is um, I'm sure that, that some of the engineers of the spacesuits might be considering that to some extent and there's nothing wrong with that. but. Um, Certainly, I don't think that um, any astronaut would be like, oh, I wish this looked prettier, <laughs> you know? <laughs> Not at this point, anyway. <laughs> uh -huh. But, you know, maybe eventually if um, there was different companies making different spacesuits and such, then that might become a thing. <laughs> All right, George, thank you. Um, can people follow your research? Can people keep up with you? Um, I, you know, I don't really um, have you know, I'm like the worst social media person. I don't have a Facebook page. I don't have, I have a Twitter account, but I don't do anything with it. So <laughs> um, like every once in a rare while I'll go there. Like for instance, I did actually go to my Twitter account because this was like, I think about a year ago now or close to a year ago now, um, Donald Trump had um, tweeted something about, um, this was after Pence had already made this. Yeah, we're going to the moon. We're going to the putting humans on the South Pole thing. He had tweeted something like, um, you know, why are we going to the moon? We shouldn't go to the moon. We should just go to Mars. Anyway, the moon and Mars are the same thing. It was some ridiculous, yeah, very weird thing that he had tweeted. Oh. And, but, but I was prompted to go and, and respond or, um, about it because he capitalized moon twice. And I'm very happy about that. So that's what I tweeted. Hey, at least he capitalized moon. <laughs> All right. Well, thank you, George. I really appreciate this. And thank I'm you. It's fun.